name. I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles uh, to Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 26, and we're going to read from verse 14 of the chapter. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, and we're going to read from verse 14. Uh, we'll take the Matthew account, we'll, we'll refer to Luke 22 and John 13 other pastors as well are thinking about the same thing. But uh, Luke, or Matthew 26 and verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and brake it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, Yet will I not deny thee, likewise said all the disciples. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and infallible word to our hearts for his name's sake. Now, we've been thinking about the events that lead up to Calvary, the events that just took place before the Lord was crucified. We're told that the Lord set his face to grow as a flint to go to Jerusalem. 
And he knew well what was going to befall him. You read the verse 31 there and you can see that he's telling his disciples what is going to take place in a few days' time. And yet he goes through all of these events and you can just imagine what must have been going through his mind and his heart as he is facing this and as he's going through the different events and as Calvary is coming closer. But we've already thought about a couple of the events. We've thought about the triumphal entry and then last uh, time we uh, had a regular prayer meeting we thought about the Olivet Discourse and about uh, the predictions and the prophecies that the Lord made about the days to come. Now, tonight we're looking at the Last Supper, and we're thinking about this time when the Lord inaugurated the Lord's Supper, and we thought about these uh, symbols that commemorate his death and the covenant sign that is given here of God's fellowship with his redeemed people. And we think about the uh, scene here. The disciples are gathered together for a Passover, Passover service. Um, and the Lord would have uh, made sure that everything was done according to Moses' instructions. We know that he kept all of the law and he kept the law perfectly. And so everything would have been, nobody would have kept the Passover the way that the Lord Jesus kept the Passover and yet in the midst of it, he changes the liturgy. And only he could do that. Only he could change it. And he uh, gives now the Lord's Supper as one of the signs. Our catechism calls the Lord's Supper and baptism signs and seals of the Lord's covenant. You think of how every covenant had a sign. You had circumcision in the Old Testament. Noah's covenant had the sign of the rainbow, and the new covenant has the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But we think of how the Lord here now is in this place. He's in the upper rooms, room here. The events are leading so very rapidly to Calvary, and we think of this poignant scene as the Lord is, as it were, giving his disciples the last instructions. Here is this final fellowship meal that they have one uh, with another. And we enter into holy ground, as it were, as we look at these scenes. And I want us just to think about what is happening here in this portion of Scripture. What do we find as we look at the Last Supper? Well, first of all, I want us to think tonight about the setting of the Last Supper. If you look at verse 17 there, it begins to set the scene. It says, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? The Feast of Unleavened Bread was closely related to the Passover. Both of the things were instituted at the same time as a memorial of the Exodus, bringing them out of Egypt. The Passover particularly uh, was about the escape. The unleavened bread was to represent the way that they escaped suddenly, and they hadn't time to bake bread, so it was unleavened bread. But uh, the Passover really started the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's often described 
in the Bible as the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread. But it is the Passover that they are talking about here. But I want you to see some things that happen as these disciples and the Lord are observing the Passover meal. Notice the secrecy observed. Now look at verse 18. And he said, here's the Lord, he's sending his disciples to prepare for the Passover. And he says, and he said, go into the city to such a man and say unto the master, saith, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And it's a little bit clandestine here. Go to such a man. The Lord doesn't name the man. Lord doesn't say who it is. And in, in the Luke's account, you will find that the Lord describes the man. He says that he will be carrying a pitcher of water. Now, in those days, it would have been unusual for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water. So they were going to know who he was. But why so secretive? Why does he not give the name of the man? Well, the Lord was well aware at this time that Judas had made as traitorous a bargain with the chief priest. So the Lord answers in a way so that the place where the Passover is going to take place is going to be uh, uh, held. Uh, it's, it's not going to be revealed to Judas until the last minute, until he's almost there. Because the Lord's time is not just yet. It's nearly there. He says, my time is at hand. It's at hand, but it's not yet. And you can see the way that the Lord is uh, overruling. He has to give the Lord's Supper. He has to speak to his disciples. And the Lord is overruling all these things. But you can see some things about the man here. The Lord says, go to such a man. And he says, tell him the master um, hath, um, the master uh, hath, uh, saith my time is at hand and so this man must have been a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and they obviously the Lord had made arrangements earlier in the week for the Passover to be at his home and then you'll notice the Lord says my time is at hand before when people had tried to kill the Lord he had said my time is not yet come. But now his time is at hand. He knows the time. He knows that this is happening. He knows the exact time because the Lord has his hand. He's sovereign in all of these events. And you can imagine that, you know, if it was that the Lord was taken unawares or it was some accident or something, well, Maybe he could have sailed blithely on until he was in the midst of trouble. But he knew it was coming. He knew all that was going to take place because this is why he had come. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so we can see something here of the secrecy observed. But then I want you to think about the symbolic setting. It is in the setting of the Passover and the Lord's final meal with the disciples was a Passover meal, and it was a Jewish cedar meal here. And there is that setting here uh, to the giving of the Lord's Supper and all the rest of it. And there would have been a lot of preparation would have had to have been done for 
the cedar meal for the uh, Passover meal, they would have gone in the morning and they would have cleaned the house. Uh, they would have gone into Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem that this was to take place. And they would have gone through the ritual of searching for yeast, cleaning the room, preparing the unleavened bread. And then the lamb for the meal would have been taken earlier in the week and they, it would have been slain as a representation of the lamb that was taken in Egypt and was slain. And the blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and on the lentils. And it was a representation of the fact that the Lord was the substitute. He was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And we think of, um, there were four cups that were drunk at the Passover. Uh, the first cup was drunk, then there was bitter herbs, and then they sang Psalm 113 and 114, and then they sang, uh, drank a, a second cup, and uh, after the drinking of the third cup, they would have sang Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. And then uh, the bread and the wine were uh, distributed. And we think of all that they went through here in connection with the Passover meal. But of course, the thing was that it was representing the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ there on the center cross of Calvary. That's what it's all about here. It is the one who is our substitute, the one who died in our room and in our stead, the one of whom, uh, to whom Paul, or John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So we see the secrecy involved, and we see the symbolic roots of the uh, Lord's Supper and what took place. But then I want you to see the surprising emphasis because one of the legacies of modernism and um, the um, kind of liturgical uh, kind of worship churches that we have today, those are the ones that have the Lord's Supper in its various forms at the center. You go into a Roman Catholic church or you go into uh, an Anglican church, particularly a high Anglican church, you will have the altar in the middle. Uh, even in some Norn conformist churches now in the last century, they would have put the uh, altar in the middle and they would have moved the uh, pulpit out to the side. But I want you to see that that's the emphasis that there has been. That's the emphasis in the Church of Rome. The Mass is central. The, the Holy Communion, the Eucharist, is central in those churches. And if we have the Eucharist or the Mass or whatever it is, or the Communion, as central, we would expect that the Communion and the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper as it's inaugurated would have been central in our worship. But you find here, particularly in the account in John chapter 13, you will find actually in John 13 that there is actually no mention of the, of the uh, broken bread or of the wine. If you look at John 13 and the account, it goes through all that took place. First of all, there is the uh, gathering together and it speaks about Judas and his betrayal, 
and it goes down uh, to the uh, end of the chapter. And when you look at John chapter 13, at the account of the Last Supper, there is no mention of the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. Now, did he make a mistake? Did John leave something out? He's far more concerned about Judas's betrayal. He's far more concerned about the preaching of the word. And as the Lord then went in John chapter 17 in his great high priestly prayer, his emphasis is on the message. The Roman Catholic emphasis is on the bread and wine. The Anglo-Catholic emphasis is on the bread and the wine. But that's not John's emphasis. His emphasis is on the precious word that is preached. Now, how is that? And you look at the book of Romans, or you look at the book of Ephesians, and the Lord's Supper is not referred to there. You see, it's not as central as the liturgical churches would make it out to be. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper is not something that is important. It is vital. The Lord commanded, this do in remembrance of me. But I want you to see that it is just not as central as those churches, the liturgical churches, would have it to be and would tell us that it is. It's not there at the center of the worship. It is there. It is part of the worship but it is not the vital part of worship. So we look then at the um, surprising emphasis here. But not only do I want you to see the setting of the Lord's Supper, but I want you to think about the significance of the Lord's Supper. When the Lord instituted the uh, Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper here at the Last Supper, you'll see what he said. If you look at verses 26 to 28, of the portion of Scripture that we read. It says, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, it's those words, this is my body, and this is my blood, which have caused the controversy. Does the Lord mean that literally? Was the bread literally and really his body? Was the uh, wine in the cup literally and really his blood? He was standing there in his body. Were there two bodies there? He had the bo- his blood pumping through his veins, but was there a second amount of blood that was there in the cup? Was it something that was literal, or is it something that is metaphorical, or is it some combination of the two? Well, there are four basic views that are held in Christendom. The first view is transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic view. And this is the view that in the Mass, the elements, the bread and the wine, are in some sense, actually changed, really changed into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They really and literally are the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you get Roman Catholics and they will bow down to the host and all of the rest of it because they uh, take this 
a little bit of wafer to be actually God. Now, the Reformation repudiated that because, for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still and will be man. He's, he's the God-man, and he still has his body in heaven. Now, if it is a real body and a human body, he can't, his body can't be in two. His body is in heaven. And his body can't be in two places or multitudes of places across the world at the same time. Then you think of the worship of the elements, and that's idolatry. And it is idolatrous, and the mass is idolatrous. And then you think of the idea of the recap, uh, recapitulation or the repeating or the continuation of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that undermines the finality and sufficiency of what our Lord Jesus Christ came to do. It says in Hebrews 9, verses 24 to 26, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that undermines and repudiates this fact, thought that there is the continuation of the sacrifice of Calvary. So, but that's one view, transubstantiation, that the elements of uh, the communion, they actually do become, literally, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second view is what has been called consubstantiation. Now, this is the Lutheran view. It was the view held by Martin Luther, although he didn't call it uh, consubstantiation. But Luther could see the errors of Roman Catholicism, and he could see that the Lord's body couldn't be in uh, two places one time in that sense. So what he said was that while the elements are not actually changed into the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but what he said is that the uh, body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ were there uh, under and through the elements. And the word there uh, is the Latin con, which means with uh, in the Latin. So they, they be believe that the Lord is, yes, he is in a real sense present at the Lord's Supper. There's no change in the substance. The elements aren't changed into the actual body and blood of the Lord, but the Lord is there under and through the elements. A third view of the Lord's Supper is that it is simply memorial. And this is the largely Baptist view. It was the view of the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. And he insisted that the Lord's statement, this is my body, it just meant this represents my body, or this is my blood. It represents my blood, just as the same ways when the Lord said, I am the uh, bread of life, or he wasn't actually bread, or that I am the vine, 
um, and that the sacrifice of Christ is a one complete, once for all, and that the supper is pictorial. It is memorial. But the Lord seems to indicate here that there is some sense in which we're communing with him. So there's a fourth view, and that's the Reformed view, and it stems from John Calvin. And there's a spectrum of understanding of this, but the uh, Reformed view is the view that the uh, feast is not just memorial. Yes, it is memorial, this do in remembrance of me. But it is the view that the Lord comes spiritually present. He actually communes with his people. He draws near to us in the Lord's Supper. And we hold that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It actually blesses us that the Lord does come near to his people. And that's what he means by communion. And we think of the, the, the sign of the bread and the wine. It is a sign. But the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial mean, a meal. We receive grace as we partake of the bread and the wine. And we uh, think about that. And, we, uh, and we, uh, we do not treat the Lord's Supper as something that is unimportant. Um, we should not make that mistake. It is a means of grace. It is a sign and seal of the uh, covenant. And so we have uh, the, uh, that the Lord does bless his people in the midst of the communion. But we think then of the significance of the communion. It's, it's more than a, a memorial that the Lord does draw near to his people in the midst of it. But then I want you to think about the symbol of the Lord's Supper. If you look at verses 26 to 28, it says, And as they were waiting, eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So you can see the two elements here. First, there is bread. Now, as we say, the original Lord's Supper here, when it was instituted, it was a Passover meal. So the bread would have been unleavened bread. It would have been like our crackers, uh, really. There was no rising of it. But it's evident from apostolic history that the apostles used every kind of bread. It wasn't just unleavened bread. And there's no significance in the kind of bread that we use. It's just bread. It just indicates that he's the bread of life. Um, now, the wafer that the Roman Catholics use is just flour and water or flour on some glutinous kind of substance. It's not nutritious. It's not, it's not really bread. And maybe we'd make that distinction. But where there is bread, it is uh, just bread. And we come and the element is bread and it is broken bread, representing the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have the wine, and the wine is the juice of the grape, and the Lord used that as the symbol of his blood. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament or the New Covenant. And the Passover then was the foundational meal 
of the, uh, or the Passover was the foundational meal of the Old Covenant, and the Lord's Supper is the foundational meal of the New Covenant. The children of Israel were brought out of Egypt and delivered out of their bondage and was represented by the Passover, and now we are delivered from our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is represented by the Lord's Supper. And it's a meal, and it's a symbol of our new covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have an ongoing practice. Um, he speaks in First Corinthians chapter 11. He uh, speaks of the uh, institution and he says, as often or as often ye uh, eat this bread and drink this cup. And that speaks of how it is not just a one-off thing, but it is an ongoing thing that we take play, part in. But there's something else I want you to see. Our time's gone here, but I want you to see the satanic attack at the Last Supper. Now, you'll find here that the devil comes, and the devil, of course, is always wanting to attack. He wants to distract, to deceive. He schemes. He wants to do everything that he can to control the hearts of men and turn men and women away from anything that would direct them to the cross or to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see, first of all, that uh, Satan used religious people. Luke, in Luke chapter 22, describes how the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to put the Lord to death. Luke 22, verse 2, And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And the word uh, sought there is in the tense in the Greek, which speaks of continual action. This was an ongoing. They were seeking every means, every opportunity that they could have to destroy and hinder the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean to us? Well, you think of the nefarious activity of the old devil. And we think of here in the context of the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And he wants to get a foothold. He wants to get a beachhead, as it were. And uh, we think of what Paul said, lest Satan get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And the devil's always investigating us and always watching us to try and get a foothold if there's something that he can use to try and even use us to undermine the message of the gospel. He will use maybe what he did with Judas here, a love for money, or it might be a love for other things, position or power or prestige. But here was the old devil. He was seeking to hinder the way to the cross. Not only did Satan use the religious folks, but then he uses close acquaintances. Notice verse 3. We're told then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And then John 13 and 2 it says, And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. He infiltrates men to defeat, to distract, to control. Satan wants to make inroads into our lives. His infiltration is seldom sudden. You'll think of the way that he was working. Uh, we read about Judas holding 
the purse and all of that kind of thing, his unwillingness to rest in the Lord's care and love. And the old devil will work on us. And everybody has their own weakness. And the devil will work upon that weakness. And you can see it there even in the way that these events surrounding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think of all of that. But I want you to see what the Lord Jesus does with Judas here. Now, the Lord knows what he's going to do. He tells them here, uh, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And yet, we read, it says, He answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And we read that the Lord gave him the sop. Now, many of the commentators will say, Well, the giving of the sop was not just a sign that Judas was the betrayer, but it was a, a thing of honor. And even though the Lord knew what this man was going to do, the Lord was still showing kindness and love and mercy towards this man. My, what love the Lord Jesus Christ had. But you can think here, here's a man who had preached in the name of Christ. Here's a man who had listened to Christ, heard Christ preaching, and yet turns away. It reminds me of the end of John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And Christian and hopeful have reached the gates of the celestial city and they're welcomed in. But one of their former traveling companions, a man named Ignorance, someone who didn't understand or care or embrace the gospel, Ignorance is tragically bound hand and foot and cast away. And in the last sentence of The Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan says, Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. And you know, it just alarms us and makes us to think away to the gates of destruction, the city of destruction, from the very gates of heaven. Now, if we're really saved, we'll get to heaven. You know, there are many there, and they think that they're saved and yet there's no reality in their hearts. One more thing, and that is the sensitiveness expressed. Just want you to look about or at John here, John, the beloved disciple. John 13, verse 23, it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom he loved. And you see the nearness of John there to the Lord Jesus Christ. The, um, John is referred a number of times, four times, I think, in the Bible as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is referred uh, in John 20 and John 21. And at the end of uh, John 21 and verse 20, it says, this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. In, or, in other words, the disciple whom Uh, Jesus loved was John himself. And we think of how John here refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why? Because he couldn't get over that the Lord loved him. He he couldn't uh, fathom the fact that the Lord would love him. 
Charles Spurgeon preached a wonderful uh, sermon on the phrase on his breast, and he's speaking about John leading on the Lord's bosom. And Spurgeon said this, he was nearest in fellowship because dearest in love. Now, beloved, if you are best loved by Christ, you live nearest to him, I am sure of it. If you love him best and he loves you best, you will be more in prayer than others. You will spend more time alone with Jesus than other Christians do. You will abound in petition and praise. You will read his word with greater diligence. You will drink it in with greater delight. You will live for him too with greater consecration. Your whole time will be spent in his company. You see, if we love him, we lean on his breast. We'll spend time in his company. But my, doesn't this pierce our hearts this evening? Do we love him? Do we lean on his breast? Do we draw near to him? You know, when the other disciples were saying, Lord, is it I? John was really saying, Lord, who is it? Because John knew how the protection of the Lord, and John knew in his heart that he loved the Lord, and he is not really, really even questioning himself here. But we need to lean close to the Lord. And it is as we lean close to the Lord that we have the blessing that we need. Oh, as we come to Calvary, as we come to the resurrection, let's lean on his breast. Let's lean on his protection. Let's lean on his provision. May God write his word upon our hearts, even for his name's sake tonight. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father, we do thank thee for the Last Supper. We think of these disciples, and they come to lean on the Savior's breast. They come, Lord, with all of their hearts. Many of them don't know their hearts because they will fail and fall. And yet, Lord, we thank Thee tonight that we have a mighty Savior. Let's lean on Him tonight. And, O oh God, as we come to Thy feet, O oh God, we pray that we might rejoice in Thee. Bless us now, we'd ask of Thee. Help us in our time of prayer, which in Jesus' precious name, I would ask these things. Amen.